Welcome back to another episode of Zero Lift. You're here with Ryan, Lenny, up? And, and John. Sup, babies? Missed you. Tonight, tonight we'll be talking about uh, go-karts in the rain being the very best. And uh, John picks a car that uh, is broke a lot, so probably some sort of Italian vehicle. We're not quite what? sure yet. We'll narrow that down in the pick the car section. But what else is So there? that's what we're talking about tonight. Uh, or today, whatever you're listening to this, and uh, let's talk about what we've done in the past week with our vehicles. Uh, John, you want to take it away? Oh, God. Uh, put me on the spot. Yeah, sure. Um, you know it. So, this week at 11 p.m., I randomly decided to rearrange my entire room. Uh, and the reason for that, I suppose I should say, is because I got a wild hair up my ass and decided to jump in on a... Uh, What's called an SFX 100, which is a do-it-yourself motion platform kit for a simulator. Um, so you like build, you acquire all the parts and machine some stuff and 3D print some stuff, and you build the actual actuators yourself, and then you make an Arduino board to to handle the programming. Blah blah blah, and it's uh, very high performance motion actuators. Um, for a fraction of the cost of what you would buy from a prepackaged company. So I bought a laundry list of supplies. They're in the mail. They're probably going to take a month to get here, but I did it. And I will keep you all up to speed with my journey to make a sim that moves. Wait, do you have a 3D printer? No. Um... <laughs> no, but uh, so what I did was I did a bunch of research on how this works, and then I found a guy through like the like in the community. There's a huge community for this. If you type SFX 100 into Google, you'll you read more about it than you ever wanted to know. But there are some people out there that are like, hey, for those of you that don't want a machine or 3D print stuff, I put together a kit with all the stuff in the in the build that's already been printed or or machined so that you just have to assemble it. It's still a lot of work because you got to flash the firmware for the Arduino and learn how that all works. And you have to physically assemble everything and then mount it and then set it all up. But it at least takes the 3D printing and some of the custom machining, which I could do the custom machining with my garage, but I would just, there was a guy that was like, 600 bucks and everything's already printed machine i'm like oh yeah yeah definitely paying that nice <laughs> nice nice yeah nice. yeah it's a hassle throw the money at it i, I mean like in, that's in how i live of, my life right it's a hassle throw money at it <laughs> in terms of uh putting together that arduino board and flashing uh the software onto it it should be pretty easy uh if you use a flash etcher uh I, that's nerd stuff i could it's not point you in the right direction there. Yeah, and and you know all of this type of stuff. Be hard. All of this type of stuff, and you know, to you the listener, if you're thinking about getting into something new, it's never as difficult. Like the actual subject matter is never as difficult as it seems before you penetrate it. Because like the first time you pull up an article, there's just words and things, and you're like, I have no idea what any of this means and then you learn the lingo and you kind of get a base level penetration of the subject and then all of a sudden you're reading these things and you're like oh it makes complete sense um and it, you know 
Ryan is a child because he can't handle me saying penetration. So now I'm going to say that a lot. Uh, but really, you know, the climax of everything is is the ascension of knowledge, right? Absolutely, climax. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I just have an intimate relationship with learning, and uh, you know, when I, when I study things like that intently, it's like I return to the womb, and it's it's almost I like I have coitus with my mind, and it's. And you really want to wet your fingers before you touch the pages. So I didn't do anything with my car this week. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, ETR is broken. Oh, what, uh, what, what sad, broke? What happened? Oh, uh, well, I'm, I'm quote unquote calling it broken. Oh, just because of all the, last the time. problems from yeah. last week? So, yeah, I won't be driving for a while until I figure it out. You know, I would like to make a a, a slight PSA from last week. We were not insinuating that American roads necessarily make your car break more than Japanese roads. (laughs) I feel like somebody could have gotten that impression. Ah... I mean, I wouldn't believe otherwise, at least here in the Midwest, man. Sometimes you drive on these roads and it sounds like your tire's flat. Well, hold on. Potholes, not flat. potholes are potholes. No. But I'm just saying there's no JDM magic in the roads that make your car not degrade. Like, Lenny's tires so hitting his I'm sway saying, bar is not America's fault is all I'm saying. Yeah, it's probably I'm just not, Lenny's yeah. fault. Yeah, there was a lot of, of culpability to be had on my end. I agree. I'm just saying that not even potholes included. I'm talking like regular, the way that they lay them out due to the the heat and and, uh, cooling cycle here. It sounds like you are constantly on a flat tire due to the way that the tarmac. And so I've been on some roads like that. If I were to go, they're all over Nebraska. Uh, But that's not the reason why your car is burning oil. (laughs) No. But, like, also, I'm sure in Japan, you guys were saying they're toll roads. Toll roads, by nature, are better off and, and better designed than taxpayer yeah, cheap yeah. highway roads. Yeah, Japanese and roads are taken, immaculate. So I would, I would probably argue that toll roads in general are better than back roads in California and back roads in Nebraska or back roads in Virginia. So now what we know is that Ryan is a anime fanboy. Yeah, absolutely. Love the anime. Uh, Japanese are better. <laughs> Kawaii desu! <yo. laughs> That's what it is. So, uh, and I also have not done much in the front of um, spinning tires. I've been rolling dice instead. Uh, started playing Dungeons and Dragons again, so I'm trying to get uh You just admitted that. Going. You admitted that on our podcast? I I absolutely will. I'm a big nerd no matter what it comes to. So uh, just like how John likes to uh, was talking about the penetration of knowledge, I also thoroughly <laughs> enjoy that. And uh, picking up that kind of craft again and the storytelling and the being involved in that. There is campaigns, though, that you can operate war machines Mad Max style. So maybe maybe I'll get into that, which would be pretty cool. But still, still driving, obviously, for the living and uh, covering the roads here. Looking forward to snow. Not really. Um, oh, I am. Nothing to... I mean, I, I just did the, the monthly check here since we're fresh month. I did 4,161 miles last month. Ooh. And it's, all, it's only going to get worse the next couple months coming up. That's, yeah, one month, 4,000 miles. No problem, no. Hey, me and Lenny are ready for that snow, though. 
I'm, I'm, I got the crackhead itch. I need to get on them slopes. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think I'll be doing a lot of boarding this year. Uh, I'm looking at like a one-month trip to Brazil. In oh, January, there you go. So. That sounds like a better option. I'd rather go to Brazil than the slopes, personally, too. Uh, nah. See how that falls, though? Nah. Yeah. Yo, young, if I got to do it by myself, that's fine, but young Pimpin's going to be shredding some powder. That's happening. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I'll get a day or two, um, but not not epic pass, you know, going to Kirkwood every other weekend like last year. Okay. I need to get my epic pass. Um, Shredding slopes. So Schumacher. Yeah, so let's talk Shum. about uh, this week's topic is Schumacher. Uh, the documentary, on- the new one. The new documentary came out on Netflix. We've all consumed it. Um, If you have not consumed it, spoilers ahead. Um, Pause our podcast. Go watch it and come back uh, if you need to. If not, you've been warned. Listen on ahead. That's probably more Um, important anyway, watching the Shumi doc. It is. I mean, (laughs) it's an experience. Uh, Those of you that are already dedicated motorsport fans, uh, it's kind of our take on it. Those that don't know about motorsports, it's uh, just a good story. So that's kind of what we're talking about, what what makes this one different and what had an impact on it. So for me, the big thing was is that um, you could be a non-motorsports fan and I think really get a good experience out of this movie. I've already seen, and most motorsport fans have seen, information on Schumacher to some degree about uh, here's how he was amazing at this race versus this, or talking about Indy 500 or... Uh, just a plethora of racing side experiences that have come out in documentaries uh, related to him. And I think this one took a much different approach to me. It really approached it from the who he is more as a person in general, from the start of his life to where he is now. Um, and yeah, part of who he is is being obviously one of the greatest, if not the greatest F1 uh, racer of all time. But it really took a more backseat of that storytelling to me. Uh, which is really cool. And to start off, it was like his childhood and things that we've never heard before because he was so private in his style with the media. Um, and that leads us to the talking about the go-karts in the rain uh, because when he was younger, I found it really cool to learn that like his parents owned and operated like a funplex or like a, a go-kart track, and he would take the used tires and put those on his go-karts and just make do with what he could and race in just about any sort of conditions, uh, which and really, I people. think, made a difference. And, and still be. Yeah. Um, he was racing Heikkinen back in the day, uh, in his go-karting days, and was just crushing it. Uh, that's Mr. Speed himself. Yeah, that reminded me of my brief stint in actual motorcycle racing when I was in college, except, you know, I would take all these used parts and throw things together, and except I did not beat people. Uh, I was... <laughs> <laughs> you are not Schumacher. Got I'm, it. I'm not Schumacher. <laughs> I once uh, I did a race with a because you have to have a fluid, something that catches fluid underneath your bike engine, right? And what everybody does is they buy plastics, right? And like a set of race plastics can be anywhere from five hundred to a thousand bucks. So I got one of those like aluminum tin like disposable turkey trays and zip tied it underneath my bike and it passed tech it passed tech 
raced. No way. Oh, yeah, I raced on it. I raced on it. Wow. And wow. I got grief from the entire paddock for that. But, like, <laughs> pe- like, I got, you know, they would have, like, some news thing at the track. And they, like, interviewed me. They're like, ah, oh, this is the guy with the turkey pan underneath his bike. <laughs> but it was fluid. Pan down. It was fluid retaining because if your engine goes, it's basically supposed to catch all the oil. Uh, it was fluid retaining at Pastec. Turkey pan. It works. There's a little works, works. There's a little tidbit for you. Use turkey pan. All right. Well, so besides using turkey pans and other shortcuts and how to get by, uh, another sort of regulation sheet that Mr. Schumacher did was that um, regulations in Germany require a driver to be at least 14 to obtain a cart license. But he was like, I'm going to get around this. And he said, I'm going to obtain a license in Luxembourg instead at the age of 12. So much like the turkey pan fiasco, uh, Mr. Michael Schumacher decided to get around that by just saying he was racing for Luxembourg instead of Germany. Well, I which think I think is the other cool. The other upshot of Luxembourg, for those of you that are not familiar with Central Europe, is like Luxembourg is like the size of my house. So <laughs> I there were like no cart competitors there. So he would enter for Luxembourg and automatically just be grandfathered into the final. Whereas mm-hmm. in Germany, there's a ton of carts and so you have to go through like regionals and all this other crap to get to european nationals but in luxembourg he's just like whoop no we're in automatically and his, his skill was already at that point where you know you didn't have to really fight for it in terms of at the back of the pack he was always competitive well yeah and and also like race dues guys race dues are expensive like you get into racing i think i think when i was doing ccs it was like 200 bucks or something like that for every race you know so like guys would run like four or five races like that's like a thousand dollars in dues for a weekend so it's for people that are using used tires and crap like that and they just want to compete on nationals and they're good enough like cutting out a full weekend of dues is not trivial money all right yeah and that's the kind of the next thing too is that he's from a fairly, you know fairly wealthy family, but the amount of money required to get into this sort of sport is is astronomical, uh, and finding sponsors is super important. And he did end up finding a sponsor, uh, competed in Germany, Germany Formula Three, and that's where in the in the documentary they talked about uh, Heikkinen coming in, uh, who's one of my favorites. That guy's so chill. Uh, <laughs> I just love his attitude and, and his accent. Um, and they were racing at that level back when they were in their early teens. Um, and obviously they would come to compete with each other again later in the nineties. Um, so yeah, I really like that intro, uh, about his, his growing up and his family. Um, cause that was for me information. I I've never seen anywhere else. What about you guys? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about all that. I learned a lot about Schumacher from that documentary. Yeah. I, I pretty much came into this effectively you, you know what i mean like i i knew what he did on the international stage like f1 at his prime but uh i basically knew nothing else about the man right what something that i i actually learned or i like i re-realized i guess since i've i've seen that footage so many times was uh the 90 94 uh marinello race you know with the center crash i forgot that schumacher was right behind him yeah yeah so in that kind of 
that comes into the next part of you know him actually getting into F1 with Jordan. That's I guess it's it's it stinks because I I don't know how to experience this documentary from somebody who doesn't know all the back knowledge of like the Jordan signing and everything. As I've literally listened to a podcast with Eddie Jordan describing that whole thing of him signing for one race and then him selling them off to Bennington. Um, so unfortunately I'm kind of, I have too much in my brain on the side of it, but yeah, the, the next big piece of the documentary really talks about his time with Bennington, the early nineties and the Senna crash and, uh, Schumacher pushing Senna is kind of what pushed him to race harder than he probably should have on it. And again, I have, I read Adrian Newey's book, um, which has a large portion about like basically what went wrong with the Williams because he had designed that car. So it was interesting to see, for me at least, the the Schumacher side of it and how in the documentary they were expositioning live broadcasting of it and the actual race with a, a post interview with Schumacher. So that was yeah. for me a really cool take and something I've never seen before to see that side of it and how much it affected uh, Schumacher for sure. You could definitely see it in his eyes there, like how embattled he was within himself to like to because of all of that. I, I have to say, uh, I have to correct myself there. Uh, I was the it's San Marino, not Marinello, like I was uh, trying to get out of my mouth there. So before somebody goes to crucify me on the internet, I correct myself, and you will be crucified. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, Lenny, you're you're a huge Senna guy. So, I mean, how did that, from your Senna perspective, what did that do for you emotionally? What did that kind of conjure up from you seeing this kind of legend talking about another legend? Well, uh, it kind of brings in a new perspective to me, I think. Um, Senna racing that day and Schumacher behind him and everything that had gone on between them. Uh, prior to, uh, particularly with you know the Senna and Schumacher sort of discussion after the race uh, when they touched earlier that that uh, that season, uh, that I think the documentary showed, and like Senna was not very pleased or impressed by him. By him, so like um, knowing who Senna was and how like much of a fierce competitor he was, then uh, knowing the conditions of you know the state of the race car that he was racing that year. And now this new mindset of, hey, this Michael Schumacher, he's coming up behind me. He's really good. He's got talent. He's fierce, just like I am. So, you know, there could only be one alpha. And um, not saying that um, you know, that had, like, any sort of direct contribution. But, like, just uh, it, makes it, it brings all the bigger picture into, into view, I think, of, of what was going on through Senna's mind that day makes me wonder watching that because i didn't realize before i watched the documentary how um how close they were to each other you know what i mean like like that how like they actually were having like a rivalry somewhat on track and it makes me wonder especially because of the different personalities with those guys if that could have become another hunt lauda thing if senna hadn't passed away because i feel like senna had a little bit more of that kind of panache that kind of hunt bravado not the same, but he was a little bit more of that kind of character, and Schumacher was more of a louder guy. He was more by the book kind of guy. He was more of like a focused dude, and I'm a German. 
yeah. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, you know, I, it just, it made me, I kind of pondered that. I was like, I wonder if we had another Hunt Lauda thing, like in the making of this, like, you know, two different ideologies kind of colliding. And I think uh, that's a, that would have been a, that's a great comparison. And you're absolutely on the nose with it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, Senna, Senna was Brazilian. He liked, you know, his living, his lifestyle and, and using his money. Uh, if you watch the, one of the many Senna documentaries are out there now. Um, yeah, and so, you, yeah, you, absolutely. You could like watch their mannerisms when they were talking to each other, and then like the way they dressed and stuff in in interviews and stuff. And it was like, ah, oh, dude, you got like suave playboy and like, yeah, you know, uptight, like not uptight necessarily, but like just just pure because brain, like the the dedication to the craft that Schumacher has of it. Uh, versus the intuitive talent that Senna had, I would say. Which is leads, how I looked at it. It leads me to another point. Anybody that's listening that has not watched the movie, was it Drive? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We talked about this. Mm-hmm. That's that's the Hunt Lauda rivalry. Great movie. To a, to a T. Yeah, also a, the brain. Also a good movie for people that don't like cars because, you know, anybody can relate with, like, you know, good cop, bad cop, or, or whatever, straight man crazy guy and so like for me too that i really now that you mentioned that it reminds me of the whole initial crash and that was not in the 94 season i think that was in 93 and then like when schumacher was starting to come up how he would talk to him and be like hey we're on the same page and i've you know it's the whole when you're at the top tier you're prost and senna rivalry there's nobody else that can compete like that and that's thing is that Part of the crash is kind of derivative from Schumacher because he was the up and coming guy. He was the threat to Senna. He had Senna had lost the uh, out to Schumacher already a couple times that year, so the pressure was on really hard for him to get a win uh, at Imola. So that was quite interesting. So after uh, the whole Senna thing, that was a big chunk of the documentary, in my opinion, of the yeah. intro years for him with uh, with. Uh, Benetton and getting his first championships going through Senna. I kind of wish they would have touched more on the DH, so Damien Hill kind of thing. I'm sad they missed out on that because that's like one of my favorite. The whole Damien Hill coming back and challenging Schumacher and uh, him leaving, they did touch on it quite a bit, but I mean, again, through the amount of content I've basically absorbed outside of this through listening to DH on a podcast and reading books around this time era, I think they could have touched on the DH stuff a little more uh, in that era. But it was still really good what they covered. I really did enjoy that they brought in uh, a lot of people that he worked with throughout the years. After um, dealing with that part, we go to Ferrari. Unless you guys have more to say about Benetton, because I think the Ferrari part to me is really interesting. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's huge. Now let's yeah, talk about so the Ferraris. Let's talk about Ferraris uh, or a car that broke a lot. So, uh, because basically that's what happened for the first four years. Now, in modern times, Ferrari is notorious for just punting everybody that doesn't work. I mean, they've been through like seven uh, team principals in like five years or something ludicrous like that. It's because they're not winning. And so they just start hiring people. But uh, Schumacher, after getting his world championship, doubling it up he said i want to i want to go for a challenge i want to go back to taking broken go-kart stuff putting it on and winning and proving that i'm the best through all sorts of means to do that with ferrari 
uh, was kind of where that challenge was to take a legendary brand and franchise and bring them back to the championship. They hadn't won a championship since 1979 when he signed with them in 1996. Um, but he did have in the documentary, it really showed, and this is where the side of it I haven't seen is that they showed the struggles of him working with Ferrari, trying to get this crap car to actually get him to win. And it's kind of the whole, if Schumacher can't get debuts in this thing, nobody can. And so it's more than just, at least at first, right? Cause he would push this thing in the rain and, and would get wins um, and come through with these amazing one victories throughout the season, but nothing consistent enough to really push them up towards the championship. Um, so that was kind of interesting for me. What was your guys' take on that sort of four years before he started really reining it in? Uh, I think that really presented who Schumacher was as a man, that section of the documentary, in ways that I've never seen before. Yeah, I uh, I never really knew or understood his move to Ferrari. Um, and now that I do know a little bit more about it, like uh, it really shows... The determination that uh, he had, like, really cement himself as the best from the get, um, and to go to a, to knowingly go to a losing team with the effort to make it better, and then for it to be its that leg that to be your legacy of getting it from a zero to a hero, like he did with Ferrari, mm -hmm. um, and giving them a world championship for like the first time. I think it was like twenty six years since like the seventies, right? Yeah. Um, 1979. Yeah, and so, yeah, I th that really shows uh, how strong of a character uh, he was. He is. I didn't, uh, I don't think I fully appreciated, like, it's interesting that we kind of see history repeating itself, right? Where, like, Ferrari is a dominant force in the in the sport, and then through happenstance or whatever they kind of fall by the wayside like we see that today right where ferrari was a pretty dominant team and now they're like a a b class or maybe a class if mercedes and red bull is s class right and uh that's right yep exactly. yeah i didn't realize that they were in that same predicament when shumi went to them and i so i thought that was just interesting seeing the corollaries between then and now and also, you see this type of thing in motorsports a lot where, uh, like, a driver, a star driver goes to the alluring red Italian team and then fails to put it together. Uh, mm -hmm. Vettel did the same thing to Ferrari. Um, right. He went to Ferrari and couldn't put it together, and then he left, and now he's with Aston Martin. Um Valentino Rossi, the greatest MotoGP rider of all time, was kicking ass on a Yamaha, and then he's like, I'm Italian, I want to win a championship on a Ducati, which is basically the Ferrari of motorcycles, goes to Ducati, can't put it together, and he is the GOAT. He is the GOAT in motorcycles. Um, so it's like, I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh, no, don't go, no, everybody wants to go to the Italian team, they can't make it happen, but I knew, like, I knew it was going to happen because I know the history, but like at the same time in my head, I was like, oh, wow. Like, why do racers want to go to the weird Italian team all the time? It, and it's just, it's, it is like the graveyard of a lot of racing careers is, I don't know what it is about the Italians, but they have some kind of mystique, you know, this history about the brand and everybody wants to win with them. 
Um, and a lot of times that ends up kind of being the downfall of their career. So I, I have to say, it, it seems like uh, every driver that races for an Italian racing team seems to lose his hair or <laughs> seems like their hair thins out at an <laughs> accelerated rate. Have you guys noticed that? Yeah, it's the wine. So, <laughs> well, that was speaking of Seb, uh, Sebastian Vettel, I mean, he was trying to follow because Schumacher is his hero, as was talked about in the documentary as well. Uh, he wanted to follow his footsteps, and he was a four-time world champion before they recruited him. So he was trying to do what exactly Jimmy did. And I mean, however, Ferrari yeah. at that point though didn't give him enough grace. They were a different team at that point, and I think that the pressure got to Seb, where it didn't necessarily get to Michael, uh, and he was able to follow through. But the pressure was there. It really showed it in the documentary over the four years before he started winning all of the champions. Um, and I was thinking too, while you're saying that, uh, you know, in my, in my stupid way, John, you'll probably hate this, but like racing teams go through like a suck, squeeze, bang, blow cycle, essentially, uh, is what I, <laughs> there's the groan. Yes, I got it. Uh, you so gotta uh, force these metaphors, don't you? Every time, buddy. Uh, so like, that's the thing is they go through these cycles, man, uh, much like your engine does. So after, um, the suck, squeeze, we have the bang, of Shumi finally winning and getting the first championship for Ferrari uh, in 2000, uh, which I think has an iconic photo shot uh, of him jumping at Suzuki and doing the, like, fist-in-the-air punch. Um, I mean, that's a poster if there ever was one. Yep. And just oh, yeah, the, elation, the elation that he had from finally, after four years of working at this, uh, getting what he wanted. So what, uh, what were you guys' thoughts kind of on this and finally winning, having the, the climax after working so hard at it? I, I thought that was great. That, for me, was a really emotional rise in the documentary. Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> no, no, I, got I, think, I think it says a lot about, just since Lenny got stage fright real quick, I think it says a lot about the, I think it said a lot about humanity, and that this is not as lame as it probably sounds at first glance. But like, he spent four years trying his ass off to get a win, right? And then he gets one, and then from that point on, it's just win after win after win after win because mm -hmm. he ain't worried about it, you know. And it's, I, and I, I think he just naturally got faster because he chilled the f out like you got to get that first one and then it's like you know hey right. act like you've been here before kind of thing and, and everything comes better and i not to turn this into a life coach podcast but like <laughs> sometimes you're just better if you stop worrying so damn much about it and yeah, the monkey's always off your back after the first that first w right yeah and they talked about that in the in the documentary about how yeah he did relax Obviously, uh, if possible, use a turkey pan and just relax. So just, it's all right. Just use a turkey pan. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Uh, so obviously, he started to dominate at this point in time. And this is where, this is where it gets interesting because this is where usually a lot of focus of the documentaries you watch around Schumacher or anything you look on YouTube, you're going to see a lot of this Ferrari-era stuff. You're going to hear a lot about the racing and all the championships. And in a way, they kind of 
glossed over this period. It was more about getting to that first win. And then it was like, cool, we're just going to keep rolling and getting all these cool. Here's some snippets of like good points. That was it. They glossed over that really big time. They really so focused Schumacher on So gets his first championship, yada, 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 it dominates. <laughs> yeah. Question Basically, mark profit. <laughs> Question mark profit. Um, and that kind of rolls into the like third part of it, which is, okay, he's dominating a Ferrari. And it really, at this point, started talking more about with his family, his current condition that he's in. Uh, it kind of got deep where it's like, yeah, this is where, you know, his wife is talking a lot more about who he is as a person in this time, how private he is. Um, and throughout this part, they've sprinkled in parts about his family, but I, I feel like they're like, yeah, he did all this Ferrari stuff and it's cool and he's the greatest ever, but really here's what his family did during this time, uh, which was a different perspective than really we've seen before, and which I- is what allows... I do want to say I take a little bit of uh, umbrage with how the documentary did it of like, if you are a complete noob and you go into the documentary, like the credits are rolling and you could be like, wait, so like, is he dead? Like what happened? Like they, they, <laughs> they really talk around it and i think it was Mm -hmm. trying to be sensitive to the family and like everything that's going on like you know for those of you that don't know like he got in a skiing accident and was in a coma for a while and then he came out of the coma but he's basically a vegetable so you know straight up that's and i well yeah and i kind of like the documentary i'm sitting there i'm like i know this but like are y'all gonna say it or right you know it's like his family like it is hard not having him here, like not having him here. What do you, what do you mean not having him here? Uh, so that it's you know I, I maybe they did that just to, I think it was sensitivity, but it also just kind of was like okay, like like what is it? What happened? I want to know. Super ambiguous, and and they've always been that way since the beginning of the of the ski accident. They've been very private. This is the most information that they've more or less released on it, and even then they're still ambiguous about what it is i mean there's like three sentences on wikipedia and that's saying something you know normally you get these current celebrity deaths or accidents and there's like 16 paragraphs about what happened or just copious amounts of information and you will not find any on on this at all uh really more than just this snippet yeah well i mean that really says a lot about um his his value for privacy right and i mean if you really think about it m being such a strong character or a person of such strong will and determination and focus, um, I'm sure he put a lot of pressure on himself to be continuously be the best at whatever he did. And so, like, when you think about having such a catastrophic accident like he had, and then relegated to what I would assume is like a wheelchair for the rest of your life, not being able to do what you did or at any level of what you were used to be able to, like that's a huge psychological trauma hit, right? Um, and I mean, moreover so for kind of people like that that are that are so good at whatever they do, they just excel at everything like he did. Um, I imagine that there is something in his will or, you know, the family is acting on it, you know, his last otter wish to keep it under wraps as much as possible just to save himself whatever self-shame that he might 
put it on him. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the, thought. the thing about it for me was uh, I realized watching this that, like, the accident happened in, what, 2013? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that he, like, I just completely forgot. Like, I, I didn't realize that he was alive, dead. I, 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 he's still there, but nobody has seen him or heard from him or anything since 2013, except for, like, cryptic updates. And it sounds like, you know, he's basically, like, like can't talk, can't really do anything. And it blew my mind. I mean, completely blew my mind to think about, like, for the last, what, eight years, he's just kind of right. been been there just you know been a just been there just been a lump and that i was like oh my god like what there was a report a few years ago saying that like after he got out of the coma he was able to start like some sort of physical therapy but then i towed at some point yeah i think that was the report but like that was never confirmed or whatever they gave him a stem cell treatment in like 2019 and quote yeah his condition improved but like from everything i've seen he still hasn't been able to actually communicate more than mm. like right can you hear me and he like twitches and i'm just like what is what is living for eight years like is that i feel like i'd be like kill me like i i but right. he can't even say that i i don't right that it's rough Ah, he was able to start watching. He started. He's able to watch F one again, according to uh, Gene Todd, who as, which, sidebar, who's who's presented as his friend, and then the Ferrari principal, and then also the current CEO, of, of, uh, what, so which dots on a lot of different roles, both Shumi's career, but also, so, to the Formula One sense. But yeah, he was making good progress. Struggles to communicate. Obviously, his son, Mick, uh, who is now an F1 racer, really wants to communicate with his dad. That's like the, the meme that's out there of the like the touching. Like, I just want to be able to talk to my dad about racing and, and where I am. Uh, and that part choked me up a bit. And another side note, too, is during the skiing accident, he was wearing a helmet. And the doctor said that had he not been wearing a helmet, he'd probably be dead. Uh, so, uh, kids, PSA, wear a helmet. Uh <laughs> Like For the love of God, I, yeah. I, I I don't understand. I live next to a state, two states, so you could, don't have to wear helmets when you're riding a motorcycle, and it blows my mind that anybody choose to get on a motorcycle without a helmet. I I, I can't handle that. Uh, I don't know why that's allowed at all. So yeah, wear yeah, a helmet. Crazy. Wear I a mean, helmet when doing dangerous things, folks. I I think. Uh, you know, I'm a personal liberty guy. I, you know, I think if you don't want to, you should be allowed to. But I also think it's the dumbest thing you could possibly do. Uh, Here's I, your Darwin Award. Yeah, I never ride without a helmet. Um, Ever. But I am kind of libertarian in the sense that I'm like, hey, if you want to fuck your entire life up, like, you should be able to, I guess. But Yeah, I mean, absolutely do what it is you want to do if you choose to not wear a helmet and mess up your life. That's on you. Um, I think it's a great idea to wear a helmet, and I'm glad that he was. So it's a great documentary. I would recommend checking it out. If you're a fan of this podcast, you'll probably be a fan of that documentary, mostly because it's kind of like us, where we talk about motorsports, but we're also just a bunch of goofy cats talking about other things, too. 
Uh, speaking of things that are great uh, but possibly broken, the great part is John's pick a car section. The broken part is the hint for this week's car. So let's move on to that. John, what do you have for us? And uh, take us through the rules for those that are new to Zero Lift. Uh, yes. So in what I wish I was driving, I pick a car. And Lenny and Ryan have 20 yes or no questions to try to determine what car I am thinking of. Um, for this particular car, because we haven't done this in a while, the generation does matter. And uh, I just told them it's broke all the time. So That's like the, f- this is like the first generation matters car in the... It might be. I'm, but it is of, it is. if you get there, you will understand why that's not unfair. I, I mean, considering we already know it's an Italian car, that saves us like one question right there. <laughs> but is it though? We don't know, but I'm at, that's got to be first question. And with that, let the questioning begin. Is this an Italian car? No. <laughs> Ooh, shocker. <laughs> I had to throw it out there. Is this car rear-wheel drive? Rear-wheel drive, yes. Is this car American-made? American, no. Is this car naturally aspirated? Natural aspiration, yes. Uh, Is this car a four banger? Four bizanger, no. That's five. Uh, That is five. What do we got here, Lenny? Uh, Do we want to narrow down to country? So, yeah, it's either European or Asian. Market yeah, Asian, or it Asian could be it could be really crazy and be like Russian Russian. Well, does really Ru- consider does as, as Russian Europe. count in Europe? Well, Russia is its own thing. Where do you where do right. we count uh, Russia as? Is Russia that Asian or Europe? Russia is not and we would have European. To so okay. is it Asian? We have to guess. Yes, Russia is in Asia. For those, well, I don't know. Like the only really like car of note in Russia is the Lauda, and that's. Kind of broke, always broken. Kind of a tank, always running. So. Tatra, don't forget Tatra. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. I mean, there's then there's that. He just noted it, so it can't be it. <laughs> oh, I see. He's throwing a, a red herring at us. I'm just flexing my superior car knowledge. Oh, it's just you gotta. So, uh, is this an Asian car, John? Asian, no. Of course, because they don't break. Is this car British? Uh, that's where I was going to go next. British? No. Be mm. German, right? Because those were never broken. Uh, those you guys taught me that those break on the electronic <laughs> department, but not on the engine department. Is this car French? <laughs> Is it French? No. Hey. We're doing around the world by Daft Punk right now. <laughs> Speaking of the French. Daft Punk is playing at my house. My That's house. LCD sound system. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, you're right. I know I'm right. But they're talking about <laughs> Daft Punk. <laughs> don't, don't come into the music realm and fight with me, John. Guess don't a car. Battle, bud. All right. Uh, <laughs> this is not Guess a Band. This is Guess a Car. Um, is, is this? this a, yeah, go, go ahead, Brian. Go go go, go. I, I trust your net questions way more than mine, bud. Is this car mid-engined? Mid-engine? Nah. 
do do. I have really no idea where where this is gonna go. Real World Drive and Aid. Always broken, but it's not Italian. Not <laughs> British. Not I, American. I just think it's funny the how you guys' minds work because if you we're looking at European stuff, and you said always broken, and it wasn't Italian. There is one other country that would come to mind, and it's just funny that that is not the one that jumps out to y'all. Although British, that's also a good guess, because they're always okay. broken. So is this a German car, John? German car, yes. We have to guess generation. We will drive, so we got to narrow down... Uh, Volkswagen's... Earl Drive NNA. Yeah, so... Only um, Volkswagen. This is a Porsche. Porsche. Do you want to guess that based off of some prior questions? Yes. No. Are you saying that because of the rear-wheel drive part? No. I'm saying that because of the mid-engine part. Although, I guess technically 911's rear Rear engine. engine. Rear engine, so. 911's rear engine. The only one. No Porsche. Um, What is that? We have Volkswagen and Audi. So, yeah, that's Volkswagen, uh, Audi Group. Audi's French. Well, I guess it's kind of German. And the other two largest car manufacturers in Germany. Uh, Oh, Beamers and uh, BMW. What's the other? What's the fourth one? Uh, well, Volkswagen AG is one. BMW is two. Volkswagen. The other Audi, major BMW. No, Volkswagen and Audi are technically the same conglomerate, but uh, the other major car manufacturer in Germany is Mercedes-Benz. Oh yeah, I forget about them mostly because I don't like them right now. Uh. Thanks, Lewis. You've ruined a brand for me. I really, I don't really know here. Is this car an Audi, John? No. Mm. And for the record, you could have said, is this car from the Volkswagen AG group and eliminated like six companies? And just because I'm feeling nice, it's not a VAG car either. Okay, so it's, it's none of those. Thanks. Which so that leads really us leaves the other two Mercedes large and BMW. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Real drive NA always broken. Like I'm, well, I'm I'm a little lost here. I'm, I feel like I feel like BMW makes sense. You like you take you you go ahead and with the with the is this a BMW then. is this a Beamer is, is this a BMW height? It's driven by the worst pilots on the road, hands down. Outside of apparently Prius drivers, which I learned a couple sessions back. All right, so that makes it like an M class something or other. Isn't that what BMWs are? M something, I something. Their 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 naming convention makes zero sense. The fast BMWs are indeed M something. Ha <laughs> ha! Yes. John, was this car made in the early two thousands? 
Um, I'm going to be very careful with how I word this. Was it Ooh. made in the early 2000s? Uh, was the, this generation of car we're talking about made in the early 2000s? Again, was this generation of car made? Yes, it was made in the early 2000s. And yes, the generation you're looking for was made in the early 2000s. Oh, so there was two generations in the 2000s, probably then. Was the engine in this car a V8? Was it a V8? Yes. That's 15. That is question 15 right now. Uh, does this car have an E denomination in its chassis code? Does this car have an E denomination in the chassis code? Yes. Oh, Lenny's, Lenny's getting it. He's circling. Uh, so that's a B. That's a what? You cut out for me. You cut out for me. Oh, no. Oh, no. Wait, he, Lenny's circling. He's about to come in and just get this. Yeah, if we can hear him. I have, I have no doubts. So what we're looking for... There he is. There we go. What? You said the 3 Series? Yes. Is this a BMW 3 Series? Uh, are you asking if it's a 3 Series? Is that a question? I'm telling Ryan. I'm telling Ryan. You're telling me it's a 3 Series, so it's an E3? <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. Well, the, so it's a, the, it's no. a naming convention. That's E three is not a thing. I don't know. Uh, John, was this car the last of its uh, sort of chassis run, chassis code run? Did um, BMW go to a, another chassis? numbering system after this uh this car was produced are you referring to like how they're now f series yes no it was not the last e series of this particular model it is not the last of us did this e series have uh engine bearing issues that need to be changed out I think so, but let me double check. I was going to say, where are you gonna, you're going to have to go Google Google this one. That's, that's not going to be on Wiki, is it? I think... John has to go um, to some more yeah, spot for Yes, this engine di- does have pretty well-documented rod bearing. They're not... It doesn't randomly spin them, but, like, you know, after sixty to 100,000 miles, it's like you probably need to change your rod bearings. Uh, you I think have I have one, this car in the you have in the pocket. One question and a guess. You wanna you wanna ask one more just for giggles, or you wanna shoot your shot? I think you should ask one. Uh, does BMW stand for breaking I mean, windows? Yes. 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 
BMW stands for break my windows. Yes, okay, it good. stands for break my windows. It is not Bavarian Motivex. <laughs> I feel like we should have a whole episode on why BMW has the reputation that it has. Uh, man, I don't really know what else I could... I'm pretty sure... Oh, yeah. Does this car have dual exit exhaust, John? Uh... Yes. That's actually perfect. There. All right, this car is a BMW E92 3 Series. So you're guessing that it is the... Well, that's my guess. That's all, that's all we have left, so I'm taking yeah, the shot. So the, so the E92 M3. E92 yes. M3. No, this is not the E92 M3. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. No way. What? Really? This car is... The E39 M5. Oh! <laughs> what? Okay, so now you got to explain to me what's the difference here well, and how we missed this. The E90 and E92 M3s were made in 20, 2007 to 2013, not the early 2000s. They were the last E-series 3, the last E-coded 3 series. So those two questions that you asked would have given that away. Um, okay. uh, well, no, the, the E93 was the last E-coded 3 series. Sure. Okay, but the E90, 92, and 93 are like considered the same like large generation. So this is an E39 M5. And also early 2000s M3 would have been an E46, but that also didn't have a V8. Right. So this is right, the E39 M5, is that what we're talking about from 1998 to 2003? Correct. Amundo. Okay. Uh, it was the first M5 to have a V8. They used to have inline sixes. That's what BMW was known for. And then they had the S62, which had 400 horsepower. Came with a six-speed manual transmission. Great driving car. You could fit the wife and kids in it and go get some groceries. Uh, and very handsome. I think that was the pinnacle of BMW styling. And then after that generation, uh, I think they got substantially more ugly. One of my favorite cars of all time. I prefer the 5 Series to the 3 Series in general. But uh, I'm kind yeah, of beating pretty, myself for missing that one. Clean car. That's a pretty clean. Again, I mean it's BMW. I don't even understand what E stands for and M stands for. Again, we'll have to take an episode down BMW lane and why those drivers are those type of people and <laughs> why chassis codes from certain German companies make zero sense. Uh it makes sense, Dang but it's it. like its own. You know, it's like learning Cyrillic. Like it makes sense once you know yeah. it. Sure. Well, let's teach the people. There'll be an episode <laughs> coming up on Zero Lift. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, we we took the L. We got close, Lenny. Thanks for you're gonna beat yourself up about this till next week. Yeah, um, yeah, that's all right. Because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot um, of reasons there. It's all right. Dang it. The, uh, the E39 M5 did record a uh, Nurburger lap time of uh, eight minutes and twenty seconds, so put that in your bucket. I mean, for a also seat. made famous by the transported movie there. First, oh, the transported movie with uh, Jason Statham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he drove an M5 for a two thousand era four seat four door sedan. Very impressive. Is that the one where he switched the uh, switch the plates on it at the beginning of the movie or yep. whatever? He did the first thing and then he like swapped out his plates. Yeah, that's a good movie. Should just do it, Jason Statham binge watching. Um, just a whole episode on Jason Statham. Just absolutely all of the car movies. Every car Jason Statham has driven in a movie, uh, 
I take us all the way back to like lock, stock, and barrels and stuff, and like the OG British uh, I stuff. Love mm-hmm. that era of movie making. Yes, I I hundred percent agree. So this uh, this is not a movie podcast, but maybe we'll incorporate uh, some car stuff from movies, such as why Cars One and Three are the best car related movies ever, uh, <laughs> and why an Cars Two. One. Why is car Why is car two a heist movie and tries to be the Italian job, but not as good as the original and not even close to the remake, which was also mediocre at best. Um, so yeah, that's been another episode of Zero Lift. Um, you've been here with Ryan, Lenny, and John. Uh, Dionata. We'll catch you next time and uh, keep it pinned. Love you, boys. <laughs>